0: Oh, hello. My name is Robert Crocker. Uh, I'm the author of Somebody Else's Problem, Consumerism, Sustainability and Design. Um, I just wanted to talk to you today a little bit about the background to this book and uh, why I wrote it and uh, some of the key ideas within it. Um, So that, uh, you know, when you're, um, if you're interested in these, you can perhaps read the book and I will try and reduce the book over the next few weeks to a series of podcasts. So, um, so I'll start by talking about uh, the reason why I wrote it. Um, for a long time, I've been teaching at the University of South Australia in Adelaide, um, uh, a uh, in a program, uh, a kind of a Masters of Sustainable Design, and um, my uh, concern was that I was getting some very clever young designers enrolling from. Uh, it was across disciplinary course so there was designers from all fields of design but they all seemed to associate um, sustainable design or designing for sustainability with this idea that the individual could really make a difference not just the individual designer and I agree the individual designer can make a great deal of difference but um, with uh, the idea that the consumer can uh, choose uh, the greener product, the greener building, and then everything will be different in the world. This is um, a belief that's very strong and very persistent, what is sometimes called consumer responsabilization or consumer individualization. Uh, the other concern I had was the way that they had very little idea how we, um, you know, our products and the the products they were designing quite often um, link directly to uh, the larger systems that are responsible for our environmental problems and ultimately for climate change. And this got me um, thinking very much about uh, the history of this problem and also um, about the nature of consumption itself and its power over us and the way that it seems to be driving the whole economy now um, and the economy towards greater greater uh, environmental problems rather than solutions. So um, I suppose the way I perceive this problem is that uh, we we have a natural tendency to individualize. We we see um, something we buy as ours, we own it, the food we buy, we go to the supermarket, we select things, we bring it home in the car perhaps or on our bicycle or on foot and uh, we see this food uh, as being ours to eat and we have very little idea where it comes from, um, the pesticides used to grow it the fertilisers used, the very large systems uh, involved, trucking, warehousing, etc. And we don't really understand how vulnerable we are because we think that if we pay for something, that gives us the right to use it and therefore everything will be fine because somebody else is going to solve the problem if there are any problems down the track. Unfortunately, um, when we look behind the curtain, often there is more problems <laughs> so so um somebody else in this case uh the poor benighted farmer uh, perhaps over in tasmania growing your potatoes um or if you're in london in east africa um you know you 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 have very very little understanding of how this system works a lot of it is not transparent it's hidden from you so it's a bit like we have a hand with five fingers and i'll go through each finger one at a time, just so that you can understand what I'm talking about. So the first one is food. And behind the food we eat is this whole system, complicated, technology-dependent system. And um, we have very little understanding of this, and we have very little understanding of what happens if this system breaks down. It's um, highly dependent on transport, highly dependent on communication systems, and highly dependent on chemical agriculture. All these things are, are very high carbon in their impacts. They impact the environment directly. In fact, some people think that around 50% of the carbon now released into the atmosphere is from agriculture over many years, over a century or more. The second finger on our hand is home. We, we spend most of our life buying the home we need, renting it, um, working to supply the money we require to um, stay in our homes and um, you know that we the materials the energy the water, sewage systems, gas systems, etc that keep us comfortable um, are really fade into the background it 's our home, and we identify with it it reflects upon our social standing, our status and um we, um, we would hate to lose it in any way in a natural disaster or something because it's very much part of ourselves. But um, the services it requires to build, to maintain, um, are all uh, hidden from us. They're all things we have a vague idea about. Unless we're an engineer, we don't necessarily understand them in detail. And it's again, it's heavily carbon-dependent. Shopping, that's the other finger or the third finger. We require clothing, we require um, require, uh, furnishing, furniture, everything that goes into our homes. Uh, We we require clothing. All these things require shopping and they all require materials and energy to make. And again, they're very much uh, high carbon in... Um, you know, they they are responsible for probably 20% of our um, problems, environmental problems. But we don't see this. We see this in terms of the choices we make in the checkout. We try and buy the right thing if we can afford it. But that doesn't really change the system. It doesn't necessarily have a big impact on the system. Our car... Uh, is the f- the fourth finger we need our car in most cities because most cities since the 1950s have become car dependent in fact, fifty percent of many cities in Australia, all cities are um, taken over by the car by roadways by bridges by tunnels and infrastructure all um, requiring huge amounts of money, huge investments. Um, and all requiring energy, resources uh, to maintain. And then the fifth finger, phone. Um, you know, we, we're, I'm, I'm speaking through a phone now. This requires uh, a whole network of computers and experts in technologies, in the associated technologies to keep going. And, um, and this requires a huge amount of energy to run, not only scarce resources and materials, but energy. In fact, um, uh, to run the, the internet, they say, takes enough power to run the whole of Germany. So we're looking at a very um, energy-intensive, carbon-intensive systems that keep us consuming and keep us living in our world now. So each of these systems have massive sunk costs. That is, investments that are irrecoverable when we build a roadway we don't expect to be able to pull it up and resell it uh, and get our money back we might be able to sell our road to a private contractor um, and then that private contractor can can uh, get their investment back through tolls but the actual construction of it is usually lost money and it's the same with most cities most larger systems most uh, agricultural systems we spend uh, over the last 100 years we've we've invested so heavily in these systems and each requires uh, not only these investments but changes our mind because what we do is we 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 create uh, for every sunk cost there's an effect and that effect is a belief that this system works it should work it should work like this that it's valuable, that it uh, that it becomes essential to our lives and everyday life, and because these systems often displace older ones, uh, you know, like trams, Adelaide where I live used to have a fantastic tram system. Um, now it's all car dependent. Uh, we we're now um, trying to put trams back in to give people a bit of uh, opportunity to um, to go uh, to you know to avoid the congested city and to use public transport that is an extremely expensive exercise and we've just started down this road but um uh it's controversial even 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 though it's basically putting something back that was here 50 years ago um it's controversial because it's so expensive people believe that the car is enough and that their car is their car and And uh, if you 're a plumber or something, you need your car to work. Most people now need their cars uh, to work to shop uh, to take their children to school to live. Um, telling them they need to give it all up and go by bike is is a very nice ideal, but they have become locked in they can 't necessarily opt out. Uh, the assumption that it 's a matter of choice is totally false. We have to learn to change these systems, and we need. Uh, a, a way of doing this which is uh, something that we all agree to and this is this is the real problem at the moment this makes up the bulk of our political conflicts uh, it makes it's, it sits in the background of all debates about uh, economics about money um, so these sun- sunk cost effects involve a legacy of beliefs and commitments um, uh, and one of the things is they make these systems seem essential to life when they're not but how how do we change people's minds? This is where um you know where the big challenge lies. so in my book, I also talk a lot about how um the systems we have and the products we have are what I call post cautionary. What I mean by that is they're very high carbon they're um they're made with a function in mind, and uh that they're often very, very useful, very well made very carefully made. For a particular purpose now that purpose is functional but it it is made for a specific purpose without any recognition that it has an impact not only sometimes on other people but also on animals and plants and natural environments so this post-caution is due to the narrowness of our our approach to uh, design to uh, construction or or production And to consumption, we assume that um, you know, if we want to buy a can of soup, somebody else will have made this soup in a responsible way. That it'll come from uh, plants uh, for farms where people uh, will um, will pay the farmers properly for their produce, etc. We have no idea because these systems are big and and complex, and so we end up um, uh, in a system where. Uh, you know we're buying things without really understanding where they come from but getting back to the post-cautionary the environmental impacts of what we do are just not prioritized because they're not part of the cost um, except where the law requires them to be so so um, products that are later discovered to be really damaging to the environment for example your your the shot you have of coffee on your way to work in that little paper cup with a plastic lid you imagine that that uh, is okay but actually it's very damaging to the environment it's now the second most common litter to be found in most cities and um, you know this uh, you know they, it has a plastic lining a p lining which will take pro- probably a hundred years to break down so um, this is a typical example of post-cautionary design um, and Starbucks invented this and started rolling it out the same year that uh, Our Common Future was published, the, uh, the famous Brundtland Report, where we started talking seriously about um, sustainable development. And, uh, you know, it's extremely efficient product. It holds coffee, it allows it to be hot, and it's very useful, but it has these environmental impacts that nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to look at. So what happens is that um, you know the, the it's an extremely efficient product, and so it's very it becomes cheaper and cheaper because people learn to make them more efficiently, and um, and this is what Stanley Jevons in the nineteenth century meant by his famous paradox that when we become more efficient at making something, at providing a service, it becomes cheaper, and we therefore end up consuming more. And this has been found again and again in different examples. For example, uh, um, about 20 years ago or 15 years ago, the Dutch government um, decided to give everyone uh, more sustainable lighting, lighting that was more eco-efficient. And they were phase out the old incandescent globes. And when they did this, um, they were assuming that a huge amount of power would would be saved. And they found only about half as much uh, power as they had projected to be saved was being saved. So they went and investigated and they found that um, most, most consumers, because suddenly their power was so much cheaper, were putting in more lighting, more lighting, because they'd effectively suddenly got a discount for their power. So... Uh, there's another aspect to this which is often ignored and which is really worthwhile emphasising. Um, when we lower costs through driving up efficiency, uh, we end up lowering the margins of the producer and the businesses. This means that, um, you know, when you effectively lower the cost of something, you're, you're actually driving down the margins of the provider, so the power company is worried because they're getting less money. So what do they do? They ramp up their 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 prices or they do something else. They try and sell more services. They add more services on. So the, the typical response to this problem is to increase the volume for sale, to shorten the lifespan of what you're selling, to increase the variety of what you're selling. Go into Ikea and you'll see, see what I mean. There'll be... The um, Copenhagen this, the Oslo this, and it'll all be in a set and they'll be all matching, matching things. <laughs> the idea is to get you to buy the whole set so everything matches. This is the uh, interior designer's dream. Unfortunately, um, this again generates more consumption. And uh, another thing, of course, is to um, uh, monopolize Systems of communication with advertisements to brainwash people into buying more to persuade them that what they uh, are just missing out on is going to be really important and is going to change their life. Um, And then, of course, there are breakthrough products um, that can recover lost value by making us dependent on that product. Coffee pods are a good example. Um, You know, you take a ten dollar. Product in a packet, loose coffee, and you turn it into a hundred dollar product, the same volume really uh, spread throughout all those little little pods, and you guarantee the taste, which is what the consumer wants, and you make the consumer dependent on buying more coffee pods, and you need the machine to make it work. Uh, the iPhone is another more complicated example of the same kind of dependence, so what tends to happen is that um, Uh, none of this is a sort of a a corporate plot it's the way business works you know we we need uh, uh, we need to make sure that there's a return on investment but our efficiency becomes our own worst enemy and so as our margins decline we have to keep being agile being entrepreneurial being clever about business and creating more value somehow And unfortunately, most of these ways of creating value, because the environment is not costed in the original products, means that we keep hitting the environment. We keep making the environment suffer. Take, for example, um, uh, the way we advertise things. Um, We have to deceive people about the environment. So greenwashing is not... Uh, you know, it's something terrible that some companies do. It's something that most companies do because their products, their services are post-cautionary. They're designed for a particular use. They're not designed to, um, to, to be something that can be thrown away safely or recycled safely because there's no obligation in the present market to do this. We've got very few regulations in this area, very few. So, for example, an advertisement will tell you that um, a hybrid car has zero emissions, which is nonsense. Um, In fact, it has probably more emissions in its um, manufacture than a normal car, a normal small car. You know, advertisements will tell you that SUVs are friends to nature because you can get an SUV and you can go out into places where roads are really bad. This is nonsense. So um, we cannot admit that almost every product we use is bad for the environment and sometimes bad for you. We must talk up the benefits and we must believe in what we're selling. So business people, in a way, are caught in this uh, continuous sort of um, dilemma. They must promote their products. Also, they must, in a way, overlook the damage that these products inevitably must cause somewhere along the supply chain. So, um, uh, and to sell the product, they must promise that that product is going to make a difference to the consumer's life. And this means that the good life the consumer hopes for, that is, uh, an adequate life, a, a decent life, has to be pumped up into the good life that can only be enjoyed after the purchase of the product that's being sold. So we must keep thinking of this particular purchase as a key to our future happiness. So given that most products are made in distant factories, uh, you know, and that they're essentially anonymous, they're produced by designers and engineers and then the factories tooled up and then they're made, they're dead, they're objects, they're just objects. So how do we bring them to life? This is the magic of design and the magic of communication. And branding, uh, in a way, smooths over this anonymity and this distance between the consumer and the producer by creating a personality that is then, um, as it were, painted on or covered over or or, um, actually designed into the product. And branding also disguises the product's dependence on systems. So the Maserati is yours to own if you just have your, a spare $400,000 or whatever. And that uh, that wonderful magical car is beautiful. It's beautifully made. Everything is perfect in it. And by by getting into it, you're going to buy yourself a piece of paradise because it is a luxury item and it implies that it's best in the class. You can't get any better. So if you require a car, by having such a car, your life will be transformed. So the, the advertisement goes. Because luxury is the ultimate standard in any domain. Luxury is continuously changing because it creates a chase and flight system where uh, the rich will buy the luxury product And then the cheaper product will be based like a copy on the luxury product and then the rich have to find the next best thing. But certain brands will stand the test of time because they're too expensive. The gateway is too expensive for the poor to get hold of, for the rest of us to get hold of. So branding, in a sense, creates a sense of social position. It creates a sense of social place for the consumer. Once we have uh, the right brand, we're in the right place. So what does all this mean for design and for sustainability? Um, So at the moment, we've really only just started thinking about this stuff. You might say, oh, we've been going on about sustainable systems and sustainable energy for a long time well really this is because this is easiest it's easiest to transform our energy systems it's much harder to actually think about consumption much harder because in a sense um you know what we really want to do is to have some sort of magic magic bullet uh change a power station here a power station there or whatever change our our water system and everything will get better and everything will be fine. And there are uh, optimists who think this is this is great. All we need is um, more efficient systems, more eco-efficient systems, and things get more efficient, more lighter, uh, they'll have less impact on the world. Unfortunately, um, history does not bear this out. If you look at import figures into the US over the last 20 years or so, you'll find that Volumes and weights of things have increased, you know, over 20 or 30 years. Um, People in America are buying more stuff. Even in America with all its economic problems, they're buying more stuff. Um, And um, they're buying more stuff because they're often buying more volumes of stuff. And now, even though the individual price of these things might be slightly lower than they were over time, this is what happens, relatively lower to incomes... Uh, you know, there's more variety and more volumes. And this means that, in a way, this idea that more efficient products can solve the world's problems is ultimately nonsense. We can't rely on technology alone. We have to change um, consumption and we have to reduce the volumes of things people are buying. How do we do this? Well, to start with, we have to really start embedding... uh, Economic, economically we have to start embedding environmental costs into what we produce and what we buy. Otherwise, we are going to end up living in a waste bin, uh, living um, in the worst possible case scenario and I don't need to go into that really. So um, at the moment, there's very few environmental costs borne by the producer or seller. For example, in Australia... Uh, where we have... I I live in the driest state, in the driest continent in the whole world, South Australia. Uh, Much of the state is desert. And as a water user, we have to pay very high water rates. But if I want to open a big mine in the north, if I want to open a huge cotton plantation somewhere in the north, I can dig my water out of the ground for free. The government is going to encourage it because they say, oh, it's going to make jobs, therefore go ahead. So we have got in In Australia, we have the whole water thing it 's absolutely appalling. We have corruption in the water system where big players will effectively persuade politicians to change regulations behind everyone 's backs to get more water for free or more water cheaply um, so that to me is very much indicative of what we find in every other area of consumption we 're not We, we claim we 're charging the user, but more more often than not we 're charging Only the little user, the little taxpayer, the ones who are easiest to push (laughs) and bully. So um, we have to actually really bring this out into the open and start charging. Uh, for the environmental impacts in things. And this will encourage better designs, more eco-efficient designs. And will also encourage us to reuse materials that at the moment we're throwing away. At the moment we are creating things to live for a shorter period of time. We're creating things to be waste-ready effectively. Um, Because when we make waste, we create room in the consumer's life for the new product. So by deliberately creating something that will break down or changing the technology so the user has to shift to a new product, what we do is we create the opportunity for the business to sell more products. And really, we can't do this because this has a dramatic impact on resources and on the economy uh, in the long term and uh, also on the earth. And so we have to really rethink design how we go about uh designing and in my book i start to talk about this but it's some it's a it's it's a bit too big for my book and this is the whole idea of what we do when we design we are certainly not designing a a stupid product for a stupid industry for a stupid consumer it's not just a chain which starts Uh, from the mine and goes through in a linear fashion because at every step um, we are designing a relationship when the man digs when the man (laughs) usually (laughs) uh, digs out uh, a material for a mobile phone uh, in Africa say um, this has huge impacts on the environment um the the businessman the business company the corporation digging uh, those resources out of the Congo or somewhere um, they are designing a social situation which is going to result an economic situation which is going to result an environmental situation which is going to result they're effectively designing a set of relationships if their set of relationships is extremely exploitive and is only intended to benefit themselves, it's only designed to benefit themselves, bugger the rest, as it were, what is going to happen to those poor people there? They're going to have children being forced into mining, they're going to have uh, civil war, they're going to have all the kinds of disasters we're seeing in the world. So design is really a relational, um, intentional uh, strategy where we are in a way creating relationships which outlive our particular economic interests and this is a very important point design is about relationships so you go the next step of the stage where you're actually assembling your mobile phone in china Uh, you know we're jumping a few (laughs) over a few transport things and a few other things getting all these parts from around the world being assembled in china uh, or in taiwan um, again, you're designing a, a relationship. You're designing a whole series of relationships between the product, the people making it, uh, the consumers of uh, goods in that factory, other things like energy. You're designing the environmental impact of that factory. Uh, you're designing um, uh, the, the, a whole series of outcomes that you can't just pretend are not there. You're actually, you're actually impacting the environment at that point, uh, you know, in the supply chain. When we go further up the supply chain, when you design the mobile phone, if you're designing it to break down in a year, to make sure the battery doesn't last, if you're designing it to have a very short life, where you're deliberately crippling it with uh, um, your your software so that it can't last more than two years... You're designing. You're designing it to be replaced. You're designing it to have an artificially shortened life, and you're doing it deliberately. So, in a sense, you're again. You're not really designing. Uh, you're you're denying that. You're denying. You're denying that you're designing a relationship that covers more than product and person. But you're designing actually for the provider of the service, for the uh, your major clients. You're designing it for the environment into which that um, phone will go. You're also designing uh, the waste problem at the end. What are we going to do with this at the end? And you'll find most phones are designed very badly they're designed internally they're horrible they're um and externally they're too feeble they break too easily internally uh almost nothing can be reused without actually melting the whole phone down it's completely ridiculous now are makers going to change this very hard to do because they're competing with each other at certain price points using certain systems. But fundamentally, the problem is they don't understand that what they're doing is post-cautionary design. There's no precaution in this at all. They're not looking at relationships. They're not looking at the five fundamental uh, links that design involves. Design, if we look at design as a relationship, it's the user, um, the maker, and often these are People beyond the person actually uh, producing the good, the seller, uh, the consumer, the the setting, the environment into which um, the the good goes, and then finally, um, you know, the the effect on other people, you know, which is also very important all the way along the chain. You see these these five um, relationships played out, you know, and uh, this this lack of awareness of design as relationship building, as relationship creation, is appalling. And you find it in design itself, you find it in business particularly. Tell the designer to do this because we want to make more money. That's great, you know, and obviously businesses have to survive. But if that survival depends upon wrecking a whole country, wrecking that country's water supply, Um, you know, you can't, you can't really sleep at night and, and be proud that, you know, you're doing something well. Uh, you know, you, you can only do this if you deliberately deny, um, what you've actually done. And too many people in business are denialists. They spend their time trying to justify what they're doing. And certainly this is time to change. Anyway, thank you for your, for your patience and we'll, um, I hope to speak to you soon. Bye.